If you only get 4.0s from like the top 10 schools, you're going to get convergent thinkers. Overwhelmingly, you're going to get people who are really good at following the rules and following a syllabus. I do as little work as I can, and I'm not particularly disciplined, and I, I complain quite a bit. I'm not going to go to college. That's stupid. Welcome to Data Science Storytime, a show about data, science, stories, and time. I'm Kevin, storyteller at Keen.io. And I'm Kyle, co-founder and CEO at Keen.io. Data Science Storytime is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest or have a story you'd like to share, you can reach us on Twitter at DSStoryTime or join us on Slack at slack.keen.io. Welcome to Data Science Storytime. I am Kevin Wofsey. I'm Kyle Wild. And we are here to talk today about whatever comes to mind. And uh, we're going to start, I'm going to ask Kyle, when did you decide to become an entrepreneur? Ooh, that's a good one. When did I decide to become an entrepreneur? I'll flip it around. First of all, I, when I decided, I probably didn't have that word in my vocabulary. That's probably true. I grew up looking at comic strips that showed kids with lemonade stands, and I thought, I've never seen a lemonade stand in real life, but that seems to be the image that we have of kids who start a business, is you put out like a cardboard box and you put a thing of lemonade on top. And I'm wondering, did you have a lemonade stand? And if not, what oh, did you man. have? I had so many things like that. The very first one, I think, is probably third grade or something in that range, was I grew up in rural America, uh, kind of middle of nowhere, hour drive just to get groceries kind of place. How so many people in your town? Now, fewer than 1,000 at peak. I don't know, maybe closer to 50,000, but what long before my birth. So kind of a ghost town. It was a ghost town when you were growing up. It became a ghost town before my very eyes across okay. about 15 years. <laughs> a great place uh, to start a town, business. Yeah, a great ghost place. town with... with but there were guns, though. Go, yeah, ghost town with guns. So what do you do? You, you grocery stores an hour away, so you got to buy more groceries, right? Okay. Like where I live now, grocery stores across the street. I go over there and I buy one avocado and I go back home and eat it. Right. But if it's an hour away, you got to stock up. So we had a Sam's Club membership, which is kind of like Costco right. for people that don't know what Sam's Club is. So at Sam's Club, you buy like thirty-six of whatever, forty-eight of whatever. So we buy the like thirty-six famous Amos cookies. <laughs> okay. And. They're delicious. Everybody loves those little famous Amos cookie bags. Those little bags of cookies are the best. It's like 12 fucking <laughs> 12 cookies. And we would buy so many of them. And, I, and as I was packing my lunch before school, I would just pack two of them. Okay. And I built a little, little bit of a business where I would sell one and sometimes both of them for like a quarter each. How did you uh, decide on the price? I, I don't know. I don't remember. I was, I, it's been a long time, Kevin. Okay. Um, <laughs> this has been like 25 years. But <laughs> So I was selling them for a quarter each. And you know, it, it was kind of a great business because whenever we never ran out, anytime we got we were got low on famous Amos cookies, those would go into the next the next time we go to, out to Sam's Club. We would just my parents would buy right. You wouldn't buy them, buy more of them. And it turns yeah. out they were paying more than twenty five cents each for these cookies, but I wasn't paying anything. <laughs> so it was a beautiful business. Wait, wait, right? wait. Did you, were you aware <laughs> of this financial fact? At no, the time? no, no. Okay. I've heard. I've learned this after the fact. Okay. When they found found out what I was about my business, they were like, you know, this doesn't. My dad was like, this doesn't work. You can't just <laughs> take shit from the family and then sell it for less money. <laughs> we're paying, we're not a rich family. We were <laughs> we were you know scraping to get by. You know, kind of family. So that's that's probably the earliest. I had a bunch of these. I had one, and this is fourth grade. I remember this is definitely fourth grade. I remember the teacher, which was I found that there were a few people in my. Class who were really good at drawing like comic strips, but not very good at writing them or like 
they weren't you know, like funny enough mm-hmm. and they weren't interesting. So I decided to join forces with them and we took requests from people in the class for things they wanted to see, you know, like usually about like this teacher or like Ninja Turtles was a big one, sometimes combined. And we would take requests and I was kind of the the ba- like the creative manager, the band manager, and sometimes the copywriter. And I would just, you know, somebody would say, I, I want a comic strip that does this, and they'd give us a dollar. And then I would be like, hey, you should make this comic strip. I will give you a quarter for this. And so I did that for fourth grade. I'm so, pretty- I combined the teacher and the ninja turtle. Can you give me an example of a storyline that would be requested? I can give you one. Make it I, up if you need yeah, to. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I have to make it up. I don't remember specifically. You know, but something like the principal. Like stepped down, but was still kind of around. He was like super old. Just like make him splinter, you know that kind of thing. Okay, I, I mean and he's like teaching uh, like like karate uh, from the Ninja Turtles, the the rat, oh, the rat sensei. Okay, got it. It'd be something, just something, something like that, or there'd be something. People in the class, like four boys, want to be the Ninja Turtles. They want to be like dressed up like the Ninja Turtles. And then do they each pay, or is it a flat fee? Is it a dollar each time? Yeah, you know the business model. I didn't take I didn't take very good notes or records, right? Okay. Which turns out is important because I also didn't pay, pay taxes, and you don't want a written record if you're not paying taxes. Okay, it's an all cash business that you were. Running. It was I yeah my they, my first businesses were all very much uh, all cash business. <laughs> Although the, the first business was stealing from your family and selling at a loss, stealing from my family and selling at an infinite margin because okay, not at a loss. Not, not to you, correct? I mean, yeah. if we already write off the fact that it's stolen, then you're right. Yeah. It's an infinite. It's, it's like when, a, like today, a cloud company builds their whole company on like free credits from Amazon or whatever. It's kind of like that. It's like, yeah, you free credits and then you sell stuff. Okay, that was early. I don't think I was ever like I will be an entrepreneur. What I was thinking probably at that time was, I want to buy a baseball card, and I don't have any money. I'm gonna get me get me some money, and and oftentimes entrepreneurship. And I need to get some money. Or you and know, you wanted the quarter mind. more than you wanted the cookie. No, I had to, I had it both. I had okay. it both ways. Right? I had all the cookies I wanted. I, I, I oh, that's you know, true because you had a forty-eight pack. At home. Yeah, it, it took a while for them to you know sort of do the math. Right. So that's in terms of like the sales side. There's a whole bunch of like I grew up with a brother. You know my brother. We yeah. both eat a lot, or we both have strong appetites. Yes, we do. So my brother, we would get Dr Pepper and Coca Cola. I was the only one that liked Dr Pepper. But we would always have a twenty-four pack of each, and then okay. I realized, oh, I can just. What I'll do is I'll drink Coca-Cola when we get for the first few days when we get back from the store. We'll run out of those, and then I've got the market cornered on this Dr. Pepper. Nobody else wants it, so I would drink my second favorite while it was competitive, and then I would drink my favorite once it's you know we're out of the Coca-Cola. And these kinds of weird life lessons actually do translate into the life. I don't understand. I don't understand that one. Wait, what's yeah. where's the benefit to you? Yeah, so you of go to, you go to Coke. Sam's Club every we go to Sam's Club every Sunday after church, right? Okay. We come back home with all the supplies, and we've got a week. And I'm like, well, uh, and you know, we'd buy corn pops and Dr Pepper and Coca Cola, whatever. Well, it turns out they only had 24 Coca Colas, and I was competing for those. Okay. The way to maximize my soda intake, I see, was. Well, no one's going to drink the Dr Pepper besides me and sometimes my friends. So I've got a I could compete with my dad and brother over the Coca-Cola's while that market was competitive until it's not until they're all gone. And then you're the only one in the house. And then I'm the only one who has soda for a while. I'm just, I'm just kind of enjoying my Dr Pepper's like three a day, you know, for the last few days cuz who cares? Five whatever, it didn't matter. I had friends over I give them Dr Pepper, I, you know. I always had that stuff. So there's no money changing hands but it, there's an entrepreneurship. I don't know how to describe it. I think there's an entrepreneurship 
sounds like an entrepreneur. I don't, I, I don't know exactly he, what words to put on it. Certainly sneaky. Um, <laughs> is sneaky one of the ways? Is that, is that one of the entrepreneurial traits? I, I don't know. I mean, uh, you tell me. <laughs> Strategic. Strategic. Um, you know, asset allocation, whether there's cash changing hands or not, is certainly a part of the, part of the gig. I kind of always knew it, you know. When I was a kid, uh, I I wanted things, and my parents, you know, we weren't we didn't have a lot of money, so they'd have to tell me we don't we can't get those things. And they would they would joke about it. My family would joke about it, like, "Man, you'd better grow up to make some money because you have expensive taste." Because I like wanted Red Lobster or whatever. How far did you have to go to Red Lobster? Red Lobster is about an hour. Okay, probably the nearest one was probably in Carbondale, about sixty miles north. And that was your favorite. Red Lobster was my favorite. That was my birthday treat. And what'd you order? The the main thing that I remember the most was probably seafood in every bite pasta. <laughs> I see the advertiser and you cringing. I, like, that's no, I terrible just, I'm remembering the day because you grew up having that. Like you say, you grew up poor, you know, and that Red Lobster was like a special treat in my family. Red, I wanted to go to Red Lobster, and my parents said oh, that's too expensive, that's too fancy for us. And yeah. then I never went to Red Lobster until the one time you took me there uh, when horrifying. I was in my 30s. <laughs> and you said, we're going to Red Lobster. And I said, and I couldn't go that night. And I said, but that's my dream. <laughs> I didn't even know it was my dream until you you threatened to go without me. And you were kind enough to postpone it. You said, you know what, we'll go to Red Lobster tomorrow so you can come. And as I recall, none of us enjoyed it very much. It was terrible. It was really terrible. Yeah. I mean, the place has two stars on Yelp, I think, right now, the Red Lobster in San Bruno. I mean, I, I grew up certainly not poor, certainly scraping, but my, you know, Red Lobster was sort of in my teens. That was like 13 or 14, okay. and we'd, we'd, we'd done a lot better as a family. Um, eventually, my parents retired early and bought a house with a pool and an RV and stuff, so kind of... I'm really glad that stealing those cookies didn't bankrupt the family. No, no, but I mean, there's it was very often, that, like, there's this, I'm from the Midwest, blue-collar family, you know, kind of the first generation to go to college really were my... My brother and me, and so there's this, there's this interesting thing in those in those the value system in the Midwest and and certainly in the Bible Belt, and sort of toward the South, which is hard work and discipline and 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 don't complain, and that's that's the value system, right? So, and my my dad, bless his heart, he always tried to teach me those values. <laughs> and if you know me very well, that's not really, you know, I do as little work as I can, and I'm not particularly disciplined. And I I complain quite a bit, so I didn't work, I didn't take. But you try to you know you try to use how you're raising your kids you know chores, allowances, tying chores to allowances and that kind of thing to teach these kinds of lessons and I just always I didn't want to learn the lesson that I I should go mow the lawn in 105 degree weather 100 percent humidity we had a huge lawn and it was a lot of it wasn't even ours it was just kind of like attached to the woods but I'm gonna mow that too I didn't want to learn the lesson that I'm gonna do that and get like three dollars. That's not a lesson I wanted to learn, but what I did figure out was I could get $3 a whole lot easier and pay somebody else to do that. So what I learned was, oh, $3 is, is going to get me out of the work. What I was supposed to be learning was the work would give me $3. I, didn't, I never learned that lesson. Well, you paid, you paid some other kids yeah, to Yeah, so I figured out that I could, like, at a pretty early age, at, at about 13, I figured out I could make a whole lot more money on the internet than my whole month's allowance just by making websites, putting some ads on them. At peak, I made 300 bucks a month through one summer. It's just from like a website that I didn't do. I mean, I about video games. Like it was all fun. I was learning to program. I'd put stuff on the internet, put some ads on people, click on the ads. I get money. What do you mean it was about? It was just you rating them, or what? yeah, I made a I made a website called Final Fantasy Fever. There's a bunch of nerdy Japanese, you know, kind of nerd games called Final Fantasy. You know, at first I just sort of 
I mean, there's no two ways to put it. I, I, I would pirate a bunch of content other people had written about these games, and I would grab all the music and, and MIDI files and all the art and just index it all and put it on the site, and then I've conned my way up to the top of Yahoo for Final Fantasy, so people would always find my site. And then eventually I wrote my own content as I, as I got older and could actually contribute, but I was honestly just taking content from other sites and putting them in one place. And I would make 40 times my allowance doing that, and then I could just pay somebody to, to mow the lawn and... And my parents were like, "Oh, you don't get it. You're not getting. You're not getting it." And I was like, "I think I am getting it. <laughs> I think I, I learned the lesson. I don't want to have a job where I mow the lawn, so I better figure out how to get three dollars or whatever the dollar figure was." <laughs> it turns out a lot of entrepreneurs have that kind of weird set of stories from that age range, where it's like just a very a uh, mindset that there is an equivalency between labor and capital. You could use your labor to find to gather the capital. And then the capital. Hopefully, you can get some vacation time, or you can retire, which just means you don't. You're not forced to work just to eat. Like, I just I rejected that mentality. I was like, well, I could also just get out of labor by finding other access to capital. What about? I mean, aside from the money, you say that you made your way up to the top of Yahoo. I bet there was a certain competitive streak there, just to see your site gradually crawl up through the ranking. Is that? Am I right there? A little bit competitive. I mean, I never got to the top. The top was the actual website for Final Fantasy, the, the actual game studio's okay, website. Well, I, so I got to number, you know, number two, the first of the not official. A little bit competitive, yeah. I, I'd say I was a little bit competitive with a few other sites. I remember, I still remember them all by name. Let's um, hear some of them. RPG Net. Eventually, later on, I became a writer for RPG Net. I'm Facebook friends with the creator of that site. He's still in software. RP Gamer. This RP means role playing. These are all role playing games. RP Gamer, which eventually beat me. Let's see, there was this thing called Kura Fire's Squaresoft homepage. Squaresoft was the name of the company that made these games. Turns out, that guy lives a couple blocks from me in San Francisco. He's a programmer. We've, we'd known each other online for years before we figured out that we knew each other online 20 years ago when we were kids. But <laughs> I was competitive with that one. Oh, a bunch. I, so if I remember them by name, yeah, I bet I was competitive. But honestly, it was first and foremost, it was, it was looking out for number one. I, I, the more traffic I got, the more people looked at ads on my site, the bigger the Ad revenue, the bigger the check was that came in the mail. And I would just like take it to the bank with my parents and spend the money. I didn't know about taxes or incorporating an entity. I didn't do any of that. You know. How old were you? This was probably, this was from 13 to maybe 15. And okay. then somebody made an offer for the domain in like 01. So that was I was maybe 16. Oh, so you you sold, sold the business. It. Yeah. Well, I sold the domain. There wasn't a business really to sell. There was no entity, legal business. I couldn't Did sell. Did you negotiate? Uh not really. No. At this point, the ad revenue, even though my traffic was really high, my ad revenue had come down to like 30 bucks a month, and I couldn't figure out why. I thought, I thought I'd done something wrong. I became obsessed with analytics, trying to figure out okay, what the hell is going somewhere. on with my money. Why am I not making ad money now? I've got way more people on the site. Final Fantasy VII and VIII had come out. The biggest, Final Fantasy VII is still one of the biggest games uh, of all time for consoles. So you'd think I would, and there's so much more traffic, and the server bills had gone up a little. They still weren't very big, but the ad revenue kept coming down. And it turns out, I now know, there was this whole thing going on out here in the valley called the bubble, and <laughs> it had popped. And it, The people buying those ads were like Webvan. They're not real businesses. They just had a bunch of fake money they were spending on ads. So, you know, and the vans. Whole thing, so, and vans. You know, and so the whole thing was propped up on this venture economy that I now know intimately well, but I didn't know any. I didn't. I had no right. concept of this. I mean, there was no. I lived here at the time. I was a working adult at the time. I lost my job in the midst of yeah. that, but you were just a kid. In a way, I lost yeah. my job. In a way, I was like, because oh, I had told my parents back then I was never going to go to college. I was like, I'm not going to go to college. That's stupid. This site took me this many hours, and now I have 
three hundred bucks a month forever. Mm-hmm. If I make ten of these sites, I make more than you. And you have you have you're a nurse. You work all the time. So I just need to make ten sites. So I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to make. And I had this whole roadmap of different game series I was going to go after and make websites. So the reason you went to college is because there was the dot com bust of two thousand one in Silicon Valley. One of the reasons. Okay. There, but it's complicated. But that's definitely one of the reasons. I think. Yeah, I guess at its core, I went to college to come out to Silicon Valley, and the original cause was Silicon Valley. Its bubble <laughs> burst. Right. There was no opportunity here at the time. Never really thought about it like that. But I became obsessed with knowing what was going on and why was this happening. I couldn't figure it out, and I was like, "Well." And then somebody made an offer. Sports Illustrated or somebody affiliate, somebody inside of Sports Illustrated made an offer on the domain because the domain was thefever.com, which was decent domain. Oh yeah. And then I sold it for like twenty five hundred bucks. Which I'd calculated was more than I would ever make again, based on the pattern of more people coming to the site and clicking on ads. And the, I mean, it went from like you, I would get like four dollars a click to like four cents a click. It was night and day. It was crazy how quickly all this stuff changed. Yeah, I went from getting a paycheck every month to being out of work. So <laughs> I had heard of Silicon Valley. I didn't, yeah. I didn't even know it. It was related to what I was doing because I'd seen this TNT movie called Pirates of Silicon Valley about like, you know, Steve Jobs and. And I, I watched it and I was like, I want to go to Silicon Valley and be a pirate. And I want to start a computer company in Silicon Valley. But I didn't know it was actually related to this. I'm showing you right now that the fever.com is not being currently used. So I think you sold you, you sold high. I think you did a good job. I think I sold high. Yeah. And I should probably buy that. You can buy, that gave buy me, back. I almost cried when you showed me that. I know. I, I, think, <laughs> I think you should buy it back before we air this episode. And, right, and, this episode is going to be wildfire. Yeah, exactly. And the fever.com is going to be the thing. Yeah, it's going to be huge. I heard Beyonce wants to buy it. Uh, um, you didn't hear it here. <laughs> <laughs> so, that was, so that was high school. So then you did go to college. I did go to college. And uh, you've already you've now sold the fever.com, so you're, you're without a business. Does the itch strike again in college? Yeah, I mean, it, it to some degree. I mean, we one of the things that happened in college was I had a little bit of a burn rate, right? Like my parents helped out as much as they could, and and you know I still had to cover some stuff, so I ended up working a couple jobs. It's kind of interesting the amount of risk you'll take when you've got to cover your your you know food, water, shelter, your bases. You won't take as much risk. So instead of scamming my way into like zero labor, four hour work week, I, I <laughs> you know like. Those spam emails that are like, I make a hundred dollars a day on the internet without yeah. doing anything. Like that was my mentality before. But once I got to college, I, I was in the dish room making five fifteen an hour, which was minimum wage at the time, which is very different. I mean, I was kind of learning that lesson that my parents wanted to teach me, which was you got to go like do awful shit and get barely paid for it, <laughs> and that's life. And there I was, like in college for engineering school. You know, University of Illinois is interesting. It's kind of like it's the local state school. It's a good school, and you kind of got like. Pretty bright, but not particularly wealthy kids, like a lot of my friends and me. And then you've got like kids from the suburbs whose parents did very well, and and they're going there because it's a good school, and just clashing, you know. So I was in the dish room, covered in like slop, <laughs> making five fifteen an hour. <laughs> and some some of the kids in my class uh, didn't have to do that, including my co-founder Dan, who didn't have to do that. And if he's listening to this, you know, he didn't we'll, have- we'll get his side of the story. Eventually. Yeah, <laughs> eventually. But you know, we would do things. We would throw these college parties. We had some. We had a big house, junior and senior year, where we would throw these parties and always try to, you know, cover the kegs and then make as much money as we could. Basically, we threw illegal underage drinking parties. And I think the statute. <laughs> I think the statute of limitations. We'll make sure it's passed by the time this is is aired. Yeah, 
Yeah, because we were the only ones at the University of Illinois doing that. And then, you know, you'd sell these cups for like five bucks a cup. And it's like we were underage too, so it's not, you know, nearly as bad if you're also a minor. So whoever sold us the kegs was really, was, they were really breaking the law. Yeah. But and we would do all right. We would, you know, we'd get to a point sometimes, like, you know, the party, we would sell 150 cups and you'd think, oh, that's like 700 bucks. The beer was only 150, 200 bucks. But then we always get these noise tickets and we'd barely cover the noise, oh. noise complaints and all the other. We'd barely. Uh, you got away with the underage drinking and the selling of alcohol to underage, but it was the noise. Yeah. So, you know, let me tell you something about uh, yeah, Midwestern state school college towns. They don't really bust a lot of underage drinking. Because it's sort of the economy of the entire town, right? Okay. Like this is a place where Urbana-Champaign, Illinois, in Urbana, Urbana is kind of like mature because you have to be 19 to get into a bar, whereas in Champaign it's 18 to get into a bar. Wait, I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. You you can't drink or be served. But it's one. <laughs> I thought Urbana-Champaign was one place. No, it's two towns, two cities, twin, kind of a twin city thing. And Are they in different states? And it's maybe a hundred thousand people, but. 40,000 of them are students. So it's really is the economy. So no, I've never I, I don't know I don't know if I know anyone who got an underage drinking ticket, but things like noise complaints, things where you were, we're going to get a little bit of revenue. So you can have your you can have your minor Wait, and was drink it your party. Other, I mean, I know you went to college with the other co-founders of of Keen, but yeah. were you all in on this cup racket together? A few, yeah. Ryan and Michelle and I were definitely at the sort of uh the master, apex the, of yeah, it. we were the masterminds of it. Micah, our designer, was part of it. He moved in senior year. Nate was a big part of it, big party planner. So yeah, I have a lot of people from uh, the keen world. Dan has clean hands about the cups. Dan has never broken the law once in, in any fashion. <laughs> I swear by it. Yeah, I, uh, it sounds plausible. Yeah. Hey, he drives, he speeds, he drives really fast. Yeah. Yeah, so we did those kinds of rackets. You know, I had all kinds of little schemes here and there, but honestly, the, the game I was scheming was how do I get a degree and do as little as possible. And then that's, I, well, that's college. Then I found out there was like a GPA requirement to get into Google, which was a company I wanted to to join. And so then I was like, how do I boost my you know C plus GPA up to like where they needed while doing as little as possible? And it was really still very hack the system. I'd say entrepreneurial, but it was much more about that. That was the whole reason I was there. I just want to interject a second to say that the way you're talking about hack the system, I, I get it. But I also think of you as a very idealistic person. You're, it's two sides of a coin. You you also talk often about you know a better way of doing business and a better way of working and a you know treating people better and being honest and be you know it's it's yeah. I mean, I'll be the first to tell you that the it is stupid that there was a GPA requirement, for instance, to get a job at Google. That's stupid, really stupid. Why? Uh, well, there are a few reasons. One of them is that they they were actively, and they still, you know, they don't have that GPA requirement anymore. So actually, I think it was Larry Brilliant, their head of talent, who wrote a piece on why they were getting rid of it. That piece actually points to a lot of the reasons it was stupid. But in my own words, they're looking for divergent thinkers, and if you only get 4.0s from like the top 10 schools, you're going to get convergent thinkers. Overwhelmingly, okay. you're going to get people who are really good. At, you're selecting on really good at following the rules and following a syllabus. And then you get in the workplace, and there isn't always a syllabus. Right. Some jobs there is, but not in all jobs. That's number one. Number two, it's regressive, right? Like, yeah, I was lazy. Yeah, I didn't go to class all the time, and I, you know, I partied. But I also had two jobs, and that, in addition, right. that makes it harder to to kind of grind out the GPA when you, we, you know, you're you're. I was a cart boy at Sam's Club. I was working in the dishroom. Like, you know, that's not. It's regressive. 
in a fashion. I think they're what they're trying to select for is people who are smart enough to get a 4.0, but there it turns out most people who get into a, a good school are smart enough to get good grades at that school. Right. Or talented enough or or diligent enough or whatever, you know, all other things being equal, but the reality is all other things are not equal. So, I'll be the first to tell you the system's broken. Given that the system's broken and I'm in it, I'm still going to play the game. Is the cups the the last of your ramshackle businesses? I I want to I want to I want to round out today with the the this is the early story, the pre real business story. So, you know, what comes after the cups or is that the end of it? Is it that straight no, to No, you know, we actually did a we did a, a there are probably 10 more, but we in college that we did a software company. Um, where we were making something, code name was called Dorkboard, which was basically a a way for teams to communicate and collaborate in real time, chat based, very sort of like Slack today, and a little bit kind of like Google Wave. If you followed that a brief life of a thing called Google Wave, where you can message your coworkers, but then fork off and branch off sub conversations, and then but they're kept tidy instead of it kind of polluting the main thread, which was. I mean, way ahead of its time, but it was funny. We talked to some like venture or sort of entrepreneurial advisory people on campus, and they're like, I don't think, I don't know how big the market will be for that. And Slack is worth quite a bit these days. I had another thing called IndieCab. Really, I just bought the domain, IndieCab.com, and then I built out the kind of business model, which was I had a car and I had no money, and I had a lot of friends who needed to get around. And I was like, oh, I could just rent out Shotgun. I also thought about calling IndieCab Shotgun. You can just ride shotgun with me, and you give me some money, and IndyCab will take a little vague off the top. Obviously, we're talking about Uber, UberX, and right. Lyft today. At the time, I abandoned it because actually, my co-founder Dan, his dad, told me uh, you'll never be able, get, be able to get around the taxi laws. Literally, this happened in like maybe '05, and I was like, "Oh, that's probably true. That I don't know anything about taxi laws. I'm not going to pursue." Have this you way. have you taken that up with <laughs> with Dan's dad since then? No, I mean it's no, I. I if you start a company, lots and lots of people are going to tell you not to do it. Right. The blame doesn't sit with them. You know, the status quo is the status quo because it protects itself. There's an immune system of the present. Anything new, we tend to criticize. It is true. There has been a lot of fighting about the taxi laws. It, yeah, it is true, and it's it's on me uh, for not pursuing those things. With, with the the chat system, we actually that's the farthest we got, and and we built a bunch of stuff, piloted stuff, but then people started graduating college. Like one by one, first was I think Dan was the first. Dan and Michelle graduated. Um, my brother was on that company. He graduated. Micah and I graduated a year later. But as people graduated from college, I found that they stopped working on the our little startup because they would go get real jobs, and that paid them quite a bit. And whereas this little thing, we didn't know we didn't pay anyone anything. Indiecab.com redirects to dorkitude.com. Oh, I still own that so one. So you still own oh, it? Oh, right on. I yeah, I, I saw the future. And right you, on. and you still have your piece of that. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, proof. I'm yeah. not full of shit. And the fever.com, by the way, that's in Time Magazine. You can look that one up. So that there's, there's evidence, but I, I don't own it, and I'll make sure I own it before this podcast uh, goes out. <laughs> so, awesome. Good luck. But if anyone wants to spend more than twenty five hundred on it, you just you just let me know. So does that? I mean, does that bring us to the end of part one of the entrepreneurship story? The pre keen. Business the pre-keen life, years. the pre-keen years. It's 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 our version of the wonder years. The pre-keen years. Um, uh, I mean, there were a bunch more. The three of us that started Keen, we about a couple years before we spent winter break making this thing called IOU, which was kind of a bill sharing and sh- and settling up and receipt splitting. A sort of a Venmo. Sort of a Venmo. I, I like that you've basically been everywhere first and have not much to show for it except some domains, but. 
Yeah, I mean that's definitely one way one way to describe the narrative. Another is I went into places where there was enor- clearly enormous opportunity, and my execution was just so poor that I couldn't <laughs> even capitalize. I couldn't even sail a ship with a giant tailwind. Um, this is one way to look at it. Yeah, I mean the first job after I quit Google was the first engineer at a company where we made a mobile social network for emerging markets and replaced the SMS systems in those markets, Sub-Saharan Africa, Indonesia, the Philippines. You mean like a WhatsApp? Like a WhatsApp. In fact, this weekend I had whiskey with the founder of WhatsApp and described it, and he was like, oh yeah, well that was, you started that when? And I said, oh seven? He's like, yeah, if we started in 09, but if we had started in 07, we would have died because there's no way to raise venture in 2008. And that's what happened to us. We died in June right. 2008 trying to raise a venture round despite massive growth. We needed the venture round to cover the server bills because this thing was hyper-viral. Because in all these countries, people would send one text message to their friend and be like, hey, Kevin, this is the last text message you're going to get from me. Sign up for this thing called Mobile Play. We're going to message for free from now on. A lot like WhatsApp's viral distribution model. That's only the biggest venture acquisition of all time, like $19 billion company. Again, timing or but poor execution despite an awesome that's tailwind. What, that's what I think is so great about you and so different than me, is you don't dwell on the past. You're looking to the future. I mean, I I look to the future. I don't dwell on the past. I'm 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 mostly motivated by learning. So I, I you know I learned I learned some things from these experiences. Like with Dorkboard, I learned I'd better figure out. You know, in, in new founders talk sometimes about this in the literature, this catch twenty two problem or chicken or egg problem where you need talent. You need you need a, you need people to build the product. You need the product to make the revenue. You need. Or traction. You need the revenue or traction to raise capital, and you need capital to pay the people. So, where do you start? Right. And with that dorkboard thing, we were working for free while we were in college. But then, as soon as they graduated, I was like, "Oh, they stopped working. Maybe we should figure out how to pay people. Maybe I'll, you know, figure out startups or something like venture or something. Because venture, the promise of venture capital is you could raise money on just the vision and then use that to pay people to help you build the vision. Right. But it took me twelve years from that point when I first learned that lesson to actually be able to. Use it. I don't dwell, but I, I, I. But you learn. Yeah, and there is a certain bitterness with each of these lessons. Like I don't think a lesson is real unless it's kind of painful. When you think back to right before you learned it, it's like, wow, that guy was an idiot. Right before learning this lesson, so I, I don't really dwell, but I. There's pain. <laughs> That's for sure. I'm like, oh yeah, Uber, Slack, and WhatsApp would be cool to have under my belt <laughs> at 32, but no. At least you have the cred of the actual WhatsApp person saying, "Oh yeah, you were there first. Yeah, he's like, "Oh yeah, oh, glad I didn't have to raise money in June 2008." <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that brings us to the end of part one of the entrepreneur story of Kyle Wild. I'm excited about part two. If you made it this far, thanks for sticking with us all the way. This one's all through. If you'd like to join us on a future show, or if you have a question you'd like us to noodle on, let us know. You can find us on Twitter at DSStoryTime or join us on Slack at slack.keen.io. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And check out their library while you're there. It's full of talks, podcasts, and articles designed to help you take your developer product to market. 